Hey, good morning, everybody. Actually, going to start with a reading of a different passage um, before we get to our scripture reading. Um, Blackbirds singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life, you were only waiting for this moment to arise. Um, you know the song, you know the Beatles song. Do you know the story behind the Beatles song? I, I didn't until this week. Um, of course, it was the 1960s. Paul McCartney, the author of the song, is an Englishman, he, uh, and so he lived in a country where they didn't have, uh, at least officially, segregation uh, between whites and blacks. But like most of the world, he was watching the news, reading the news. Uh, he was you know, paying attention, tracking with the race riots that were happening. Um, and he stumbled upon a story um, in, uh, that he read about and saw pictures of, of a 15-year-old a named Elizabeth Eck, uh, Elizabeth Eckford, who uh, Elizabeth had attempted to attend a class at an all-white school, uh, and then she was chased by a mob of angry people shouting things like, lynch her, lynch her. Um, McCartney, like many others, had seen the news, but then, uh, then he came to America and he witnessed segregation. He witnessed this wall of hostility firsthand. Uh, at one point, he was, he was just sitting by himself out, outdoors, and he heard a woman screaming. And uh, he turned and looked, and he saw a, uh, a black woman uh, being handcuffed and then beaten by police for the crime of sitting uh, in a white-only area. And, and so McCartney, uh, thinking about these two women in particular, but black women in America in general and their plight, McCartney sat down uh, and he penned this song, Blackbird. Um, bird was slang for girl uh, in the 60s in England. And so the song begins, Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life you were only waiting for this moment to arise. McCartney said he, he, he wrote this to uh, to inspire and to encourage uh, these women. Uh, to, to, your, your time is coming uh, to rise and to give them hope and to give them uh, faith. Blackbird, singing in the dead of night, take these sunken eyes and learn to see. All your life, you were only waiting for this moment to be free. Powerful, powerful words. Powerful words for, um, for anyone who knows what it's like to be an outsider. Powerful words for anyone who is well acquainted with division, hostility, walls. But this morning, I, I wanna read another set of powerful words, even more powerful words. Uh, written, by, inspired by the very Spirit of God, written by the Apostle Paul 2,000 years before our particular brand of division and hostility in our country, words from God given to anyone who knows anything about hostility, division, walls. So follow along with me in your bulletin, on your phones, in your Bible, Ephesians chapter two, verses 14 to 18. 
For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What do you, um, what do you think of when you think of what Jesus came to this world to do? Do you think of him coming to kill hostility? Do you think of him coming to break down walls? Because in this passage, that's what Paul wants us to think about, and that's what we're gonna talk about this morning, these walls of hostility and Jesus who, who destroys them. So that's what we're gonna talk about for the next few minutes. If you're a note taker, here is number one. The first thing that we need to acknowledge about these walls is that they are real. That's number one. The wall is real. The wall is real. In this letter to the Ephesians, and in fact, in most of Paul's letters, Paul's dealing with a wall, right? Because he's writing to a church that is made up of both Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. We talked about this already in this series, that there was a, a history, a long history of division and strife between these two groups. You see, to the Gentiles, the Jews, they were the ultimate other, Right? They, 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 the Jews were these, these, uh, these prudish people with their antiquated practices. But to the Jews, the Gentiles were the ultimate other. They were the, these pagans and these you know, polytheists, at least at one time, and these uh, lascivious uh, uh, people uh, doing whatever they want with their lives. To each, and, and to, to, to each of each other, they gave each other these nicknames Right? They, they called each other these derogatory names like the Gentiles would call the Jews the circumcision. And the Jews would call, call the Gentiles the uncircumcision. Uh, you know, so they, yeah, they, they lacked a little bit of creativity as well in their name calling. Now this may seem at first to you like just the most irrelevant uh, ancient cultural debate and strife, at least to us today. But if you think, of, think about this for a second, uh, this is amazing uh, for us that this happened. Why? Because we have a 2,000-year-old case study of what to do when there's a, a dividing wall, of what to do when there's a wall of hostility. We have a 2,000-year-old case study of division within the church among Christians that we can learn uh, from. Because though Christianity, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, though Christianity was the first multi-ethnic, multi-racial uh, religion in history, um, not all of the walls have come a-tumbling down. And in fact, uh, in the past 2,000 years, walls have been erected. They have been created by Christians. And here we are in 2020. We still have walls. And we're so culturally sophisticated too, right? We love diversity. We love diversity, except 
in some cases when uh, it involves somebody who maybe doesn't love diversity as much as we do, will we include them in our beautiful vision of diversity? See, we all have a propensity, we all have a propensity to create an other, an other, whether it's based on uh, um, you know, some cultural uh, indicator, whether it's based on some moral indicator, education, career, even race. We all have a propensity to create another. And just turn on the news, right? I don't care what channel, any of them. Turn it on, and within a few minutes, probably one of the first things you're gonna see is some expression of hostility from one side of a wall to the other side. So what do we do about this? What do we do about this? Well, I'll tell you what most people, I think, are, are saying that we need to do about this is that we need more knowledge. We need more education. And yet, we're one of the most enlightened and educated societies the history of the world has ever known with racism alive and well still today. And that's just one area of division that we could talk about. Some of our walls are higher than ever in 2020. See, as much as we do need more education, uh, we do need greater understanding, just going after the mind alone is not gonna do it. We need to get to the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter, and so that's number two. The wall has a name. The wall is real, number one. Number two, the wall has a name, and the name for it is pride. The name for it is pride. The Jews and the Gentiles, they, they didn't have much in common at all, but they had this in common. The human propensity, it's in us too, the human propensity to pride. And as soon as you say, not me, you are therefore proving its existence. Paul addresses pride in both groups. First, to the Gentiles, he addresses it, right? Back to last week's text, verse 11, Paul's talking to the Gentiles and he says, remember you were once without hope and without God. Paul says, remember, don't forget, you were once without hope and without God because they had a tendency to forget. They had a tendency to forget where God met them. And what happens when you begin to forget where God met you? What happens when you begin to forget how God came into the mire of your situation and did something about it? What happens when you begin to forget grace? What happens? You start to turn your nose up at others. You start to think, hey, I got myself here. Pride happens. You start looking down on people. You start giving yourself the credit. And the Gentile Christians were doing this with the Jewish Christians, you know? They're like, hey guys, don't you know that like all your strange holidays, they don't matter anymore? Do you guys even believe the gospel? Thank God we're not like them. And there it is. That's pride's motto. Thank God I'm not like Fill in the blanks. Comes from the, uh, the famous parable of Jesus of the tax collector and the Pharisee who go up to the temple to pray and the Pharisee prays what? Thank you, God, I'm not like him. Pride's motto. Paul says to them, don't forget where you come from. Don't forget what God's done in your life. But the Jews had a pride problem too, didn't they? Because they were saying to the Gentiles, oh, you can come in and be a part of this Christian thing. Absolutely. We welcome you in. Come be a part of this Christian thing. But you must become like us. 
You must become just like us, and then you are welcome. Did you notice verse 14? Verse 14, Paul says, Jesus has torn down the wall of hostility. How? By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. You see, the Jews had taken the Mosaic law. They had taken this glorious law that God had given them, and God had given it to them to be a bridge, actually, to blessing the nations. The law was to be a bridge to blessing other nations, that others would look at the Jews and go, where do they get that life that they have, that source of life and joy with their God? It was to be a bridge, but instead, they had turned it into a wall. They turned it into a wall and said, hey, you can't get in here. You can't get in here. I'm better than you. We're better than you. Our morality is better than you. A wall to, to, to distinguish who was good and who was bad. A wall to distinguish who was in and who was out, who was clean and who was unclean. What both groups were essentially saying to one another was, we're better. We're better. And let's be honest, we still say this today. Pride still rears its ugly head in our hearts today, in my heart today. What does it say in us? It says, I'm better. My morality is better. My culture is better. What I choose to do, my Monday through Friday is better. Uh, my discipline is better. My race is better. Why do we do this? I mean, why are we so intent on comparing ourselves with other people all the time so that we can feel superior to them? What is driving this? Is it not because secretly deep within us, we actually feel inferior? Are we not shouting at the top of our lungs, I'm better because secretly deep within us, we're not even sure we're enough. It's this insecurity in us that often drives this hatred and division. Maybe you've heard of attachment theory, right? It says that if a, a, you know, a child uh, it does not attach to its mother or primary caregiver or parent between the ages of you know, birth to 12 months, there's all sorts of pathologies and psychological influences of this on, and anxieties and, uh, the, and, and identity issues that carry through into life. The same is true with spirituality. You might say that in Genesis 3, humanity failed to attach. Rather than attaching to our loving God creator, we have attached ourselves to all sorts of other things to give us identity, to give us meaning, to give us worth, to give us value. I mean, why do you build a wall? Think about it. Not just to exclude, but to insulate. Because there's a fear. There's a fear there. So often underneath our hatred, our divisions is deep insecurity. And this is what's so incredible about this passage because did you notice, um, Paul's talking about two walls. Jesus has come to deal with two walls and they are related, they're related. Jesus has come to tear down the barrier that exists between us sinners and God and the barrier that exists between each other and they're related. Our lack of attachment to God has led to all sorts of issues 
issues in our relationships with one another, hasn't it? But the reverse is also true. The reverse is also true. When we are reconciled to God, we are then thrust out into a life of reconciliation with others. Our reconciliation to God leads to reconciliation with others. And so that's number three. The wall's real, the wall has a name. And third, the wall just no longer, it no longer has any place here. The wall no longer has any place here. Verse 14, for he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace who has made us both one. And Paul's talking about two groups of people in this time who were as different as any two groups of people could be. And he says he's made us one. Not only has he torn down a barrier, he's saying now we're the same person. We're completely united. We are the same people, continuing. He says, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Skip to verse 16. Having reconciled us both to God in one body through what? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Vodi Bakum, an African-American pastor, says that this passage is, is what kept him uh, in the fight, you know, for the kingdom of God but also for justice in our country. Over the years as an African-American pastor and being in many white settings and circles, any time that he began to feel like, hey, I'm a, I think I'm less than right now, or hey, I may not fit here right now, this passage anchored him because what is the balm, what is the, what is the potion for reconciliation? It is the cross, it is the blood of Christ. And it is already done, he already died. And he already rose again. And so Bacham says, on the topic of racial reconciliation, Bacham says, we don't have to achieve racial reconciliation. Christ already achieved it. We just have to walk in it. We have to believe it. Our estrangement from one another, it's rooted in our estrangement from God. And Jesus came to deal with both on the cross, and it's done, it's done. So the walls have no place here, quite the opposite. A church with the cross at the center will be a community of reconciliation. A church with the cross at the center will be, must be, a community of reconciliation because walls no longer have a place. Because pride no longer has a place. Right, because what does pride say? Pride says the opposite of what our Lord and Savior says. Pride says, I'm better, so you serve me. Jesus said in Mark 10, Jesus, the king of the universe, said in Mark 10, I came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus, the, I mean, creator of the universe, the only person who could ever act superior to others, chose instead to stoop low and to serve. Why? So the division between you and God would be no more. So that you could reattach to the one who made you and most loves you. 
And that means that you can stop playing the comparison game. You can stop playing the I'm better game with others because your identity is in him fully. Your identity is in him. And that means that this community of the church, it is bound by one thing. We've echoed this over and over throughout this series. It's bound by one thing, our need of Jesus. Our need of Jesus. I love the story uh, that is told in, uh, the true story that's told in the movie Invictus. So remember, um, uh, South Africa, apartheid, Nelson Mandela, uh, white, white minority uh, uh, ruling and reigning essentially in that area. Uh, Nelson Mandela imprisoned by the white minority uh, for 27 years, I think. Gets out of prison, ends up being elected the new, the new leader uh, uh, over uh, this country. And one of the first things that he does is he decides um, we're gonna have the World Cup of rugby here. We're gonna have it here in our country. And the reason that this was so uh, peculiar and so powerful, this decision, was because uh, all of the white people in South Africa loved rugby. Rugby was their thing. They had the, their, their team was the, uh, the, what are they called, the sling box, I think? Uh, the, the spring box. Um, and they, they had these green jerseys, and all the white people were just rah-rah spring box and wearing the jerseys. But black people didn't like rugby. They weren't into this. And they would never be caught dead wearing uh, even the color green because of its association. And now Mandela says, hey, we're going to have the uh, World Cup of Rugby right here. We're gonna have it right here. And then wouldn't you know it, that year that in that World Cup, the Springboks make it all the way to the finals. They're in their national stadium. And right before they play, Mandela walks out onto the field, right? And he's wearing the green jersey of the Springboks. And the crowd is silent. They're stunned. How could a black man, this black man, who had been imprisoned for 27 years and persecuted longer, wear the vile green jersey of the Springboks? Silence. They'd never seen an act of humiliation like this, of condescension like this. And so then they began to chant, Mandela, Mandela. You see, he had won the hearts of his oppressors by wearing the vile clothing of his oppressors. Who does that make you think of? Jesus came and he took our vile clothing upon himself, all of our self-absorption, all of our pride that divides, and he took it upon himself. He wore it to win over our hearts and to unite us to the ultimate other, God our Father. And now, because of that, we are to be united with others. We are to be engaged in the wall-tearing-down process with others. And you know, there's all sorts, I'm gonna tell you one more story from this. There's all sorts of stories of this in action post-apartheid in South Africa, but here's, here's one. The story of Jen Faree and Letlapa Mpathlele. Jen Faree and Letlapa Mpathlele. So Jen Faree is a, uh, a South African woman, white woman, uh, who in, uh, in De on December 30th, 1993, her 23-year-old daughter was 
murdered in a mass shooting that was carried out by a, um, a, a, a black revolution uh, militia group. It was actually carried out in retaliation for five innocent black uh, uh, young students who had been killed in a nearby neighborhood. But they killed Jen Faree's daughter, and the one who, who, um, who commanded this attack was Letlapa and Pathlele. Fast forward to today, Jin Faree and Letlapa and Pathlele work together towards bringing greater and greater depths of reconciliation in South Africa. Now, how in the, the, the mother of a murdered daughter with the murderer of her daughter, how in the world does that wall come tumbling down? Well, it began with Jen Faree's confrontation, her words of confrontation towards her murderers. You see, Jen Faree is a Christian. She believes and has experienced the ultimate reconciliation, the reconciliation that because of what Jesus has done, we have with God. And this is what she said when she confronted her murderers. This is what she said. She said, I want you to know that this event has helped me to see my own prejudice against you. My own gains from your oppression. When you took my daughter, you ripped my heart out and brought an everlasting harm to me. But I want you to know that I see the way this system has harmed you. And even though my daughter never harmed you, and even though I never meant to harm you, I want you to know that I'm sorry and that I was wrong. And that is helping me to forgive you for what you did. That moment of laying down her pride, it was the beginning of healing and reconciliation. It was the beginning of a wall coming down. And it is a picture, albeit an extreme, powerful picture, but it is a picture of what every Christian is to be engaged in. Tearing down walls. Because of the cross, they no longer have any place with us. So two questions for you to wrap up. Two questions for you to wrap up. Number one, is there a wall between you and God? Is there a wall between you and God? If there is, you can't uh, surmount it. You can't tear it down. But God has sent Jesus to do that very thing for you. Will you look to him for life? Will you entrust him with your very life and be ye reconciled to God? Second question, is there a wall between you and anybody else? Is there a wall up between you and anybody else? Because there shouldn't be. We shouldn't have those. Not on our side of it anyway. If the gospel can break down, let me ask if the gospel can break down a wall between a mother and her daughter's murderer, does it have the power to break down whatever grievance, whatever is there between you and another, between you and a group, between you and a person? Yes, it does. Maybe you need to take the first step, though. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you do. See, the church, we need to take the first step. 
We need to take the first step in seeing these walls torn down because reconciliation has already been achieved. It's already been accomplished in the cross of Christ. We just need to walk in it. We just need to believe it. Join me in prayer. Our Father, you have done everything required to bring us back to yourself, to remove the distance, to remove the disparity, to remove the gap between us and you. You have taken care of it in Christ. And Lord, I pray that today, in addition to knowing that, the beautiful gospel that we would also know the gospel's effects on all of our relationships, that you have torn down the dividing wall. And if you did it between Jew and Gentile, and if you did it between a mother and her daughter's murderer, God, you can do it. You can tear down any wall. Lord, I pray that we would see that it's already down. It's our, the work's already been accomplished. Let us not continue to find ways to erect new ones. Let us walk in the reconciliation that you have called us to because of the reconciliation work that you have done for us. And we pray in Jesus' name.